Have you ever thought that the press is your en enemy? No. <laughs> I don't think so at all. Hey, welcome back to Rome School. This is part two of what we're calling the press and the prez. Here we explore, we really explore, without any assumptions, the real relationship between the press and public office. Jumping off from the girl's original question, What did it mean when Trump said the press was the enemy of the people? Turns out it's a lot more complicated and fascinating than we first thought. A lot of it has to do with the First Amendment. So in this episode, we're going to talk to a few people behind the scenes who deal with the press and public figures every day. Oregon's governor, Kate Brown, and a woman named Natalie Sept, who is a liaison as a press advance between Hillary Clinton and the press. And we'll go behind the scenes again with the New York Times Daily, this time with the woman who started the audio department at the New York Times, Lisa Tobin. Finally, we'll talk to a man to whom we owe a great gesture of appreciation because he's one of the people who preserved our right to speak freely. That's Floyd Abrams. But we start in our home state of Oregon, where we sat down with Kate Brown, the governor. So I think you know that I came into this office under somewhat unusual circumstances um, when the prior governor resigned. And I believe that the people uh, own our government and that they're entitled to access. My goal is to make the government accessible uh, to the people and accountable to the people. So we just talked to my friend Natalie, who was a lead press person for Hillary. Mm. And there were moments in the campaign when she felt like the press, and she even used the word enemy because there were a lot of shenanigans where the press is always looking for a crack and it felt like an antagonistic relationship. Mm -hmm. Have you ever felt that way at all? Uh, certainly I've had moments where I have disagreed with <laughs> what the press is saying and what they're doing. I, I think there's some frustration I'll, I'll just share one story. Uh, a couple of weeks before I came out with my veto decisions, uh, there was an article in one of the local papers saying Brown on track to not veto any bills. When I did come out with a veto notice on a couple of bills, it really caught, pe caught people off guard because the story wasn't accurate. So I've certainly had that experience, um, but I think at some level the press also holds us accountable. Um, I'm campaigning for office, that I'm, when I'm running for office, that what I say I'm going to do, I work very hard to make sure that I can deliver on those commitments, and I think the press is part of holding us accountable on those commitments. That's, that's Kate Brown, the governor, talking. What about Kate Brown, the individual? When you looked at, on November 8th and saw how the press was covering the presidential campaign, the next day, when you when the numbers were in, did you feel a little betrayed by, oh, by so many of the I, predictions? And I think we all felt, I think, frustrated and probably betrayed. What I think, in terms of the press, I, I think there is certainly a level of uh, gender discrimination uh, that happens uh, in the press, particularly the national press. I think there's absolutely no question that um, that this. Uh, last presidential cycle, there was not adequate or significant scrutiny on of the, the facts that were coming through. Right, on the Republican candidate. But, you know, the reality is the people have spoken and we need to move forward. And I see the press's job as holding elected officials accountable. And I think to a great extent, uh, voters and Americans, Oregonians, have a very clear sense of what's happening in our federal government right now. Have you ever felt, no, have you ever been in a situation where you felt that if you said the truth, you would be in trouble? 
<laughs> uh, certainly, I've gotten pushback when I um, when I've responded to questions um, truthfully and frankly. But I, I think it's really important that we, as elected officials, do that. That we speak honestly and openly to the press because that's how people hear and learn about what we're doing. There was a lot of flack that Hillary got when she was quoted as saying that she would say one thing to her constituency and another thing to the press. And that she, to me, I heard it I heard it in the same way as a lawyer says, well, I'm saying this as your advocate, but I'm saying this as a human being, and I'm saying this as, as an enforcer of the law. Three different realities. Do you ever feel trapped in that you can't express the nuances of Kate the person versus Kate the representative of the people? Wow. Um, I think uh, my challenge is that I feel so passionately about so many issues that I struggle to really translate that passion and that feeling into words. And so sometimes I'm not always the most articulate because I feel so strongly about issues. Just as an example, I love Oregon. I do not ever want to leave here. Um, and I just am so adamant that I want Oregon to be a place where everyone can thrive and be happy and there's an opportunity, there's an open door for folks. And I think words don't adequately describe how I feel. I think that answers my question. <laughs> what I think, but there's a new there's a nuance that the press seems to miss about the human versus the policy, and when they always with Hillary, they called her wonky because she was right. But she is. I mean, Secretary Clinton is very wonky, and I've seen her in large groups. You know, I was at the convention. I've also seen her in small groups, and she is so charming with people. Some of it is what people hear, too, right? Like as a lawyer, recovering lawyer, as a governor, as a human being, I have different perspectives, and I know that other people have different perspectives, and so sometimes you have to say things differently so that people can connect and understand. I mean, we are in the world of 30-second sound bites. It, is, it can be very challenging. Um, to squeeze all of that in and in a, into a, tw uh, a Twitter feed, right? That gets really challenging. Is the relationship really an acrimonious one, or is it just that the forum by which information goes back and forth between the press and the prez is so lightning fast and has such a short attention span that we're not really understanding each other? Or maybe sound bites loan themselves to manipulation and spin? Well, there are people in the press who are looking to have new ways to relate information and for people to experience how they receive that information. One example is the podcast, like the one that you're listening to right now that my daughters and I make. There's one podcast in particular that not only is the most popular podcast in the country, but also represents a completely new way of looking at the news that was created over at the New York Times. We met the host, Michael Barbaro, in our last episode of Rome Schooled, and a lot of our listeners had questions. So we're going to take you again behind the scenes of how the show is actually made and listen to some of the thinking behind it. 
we're on the 14th floor of the New York Times. Which doesn't seem like it's failing. Well, there are people here doing journalism. It's a really fancy so skyscraper. In that regard, this is the cafeteria, and I'm buying my third coffee of the day. Do you want anything? We just had breakfast. This is Lisa Tobin, the architect of the audio department. I think the proper title is executive producer. She's the lead producer of The Daily. She created most of the other podcasts at The New York Times, plus Dear Sugar, plus the Modern Love podcast. She's pretty smart. The question when I came in was, what should The New York Times sound like? Which I found to just be an incredibly compelling and open-ended question. A very existential question for a major news organization to be asking. So how does it get made? How does it happen from day to day? So the show is is one to two segments a day that take on this idea of what is it that's going on in the world right now that we feel like we need to better understand? How do we put it into context? How do we make sense of it? I would say the way we've come to think of the show is that the journalists at the Times are the sources for the show. And so the show is the team coming together every day and saying what is going on that we need to better make sense of. Every morning there's a 9.30 news meeting where all the mass head editors from the Times come together. It used to be called the page one meeting. It was where the decisions would be made about what goes on the front page the next day. One or two people from the team go to the 9.30 meeting every morning and take notes and listen and the desk editors are pitching their stories that are coming. So there's a sense of here's what's coming today, here's what all the leaders of the organization think are the best stories coming out of their desks that day. At the same time, there's all sorts of other channels of information where editors have come to us a week, two weeks, a month in advance about a big story they're working on. Long, more long-term more stuff. More long-term stuff. A lot of times those stories are about to become the news of the day. It just has to be published in order to be that. So then after these morning meetings happen, you and Michael go into the studio with other input from... Yeah, the whole team. So it's, it's a, I've never been on a team that's so collaborative. The reason the show doesn't sound quite like anything you've ever heard before is because it brings together a group of people that would never normally be brought together to make a daily news show. So Theo Balcom used to run All Things Considered at NPR, the show she knows how to make a daily news show. Andy Mills comes from Radiolab, knows how to make beautiful, highly sound designed stories. He's thinking about what's the story we're telling, how does it sound? Lindsay Garrison, we hired from the BBC where she was making documentaries, so she really thinks like a documentary producer. Michael Barbaro is a top reporter at the Times, um, has no experience in audio, so he doesn't bring a typical sort of hostiness to the show, which I think is deeply compelling. To me, it doesn't sound like he's reporting. It sounds like he is, and he used this word, it sounds like he's grappling with the news. He is more the news consumer than the, the person who's uncovering the fact. And that's very much the idea of the show. Let's really boil things down to their essentials, and let's be really honest about what we do and don't know and understand, mm -hmm. because we're very quick to assume knowledge, even of ourselves, that we don't truly understand. It's a very deliberate thing where we often talk about what does Michael actually know? So for example, usually an interview with a reporter draws on the story they've just written and, and references it as if that's knowledge that, that, that the, the host now has. Mm -hmm. And we do away with that. So we say, Michael is coming in as a human. He does not have prep. He hasn't done a bunch of research for an interview. Instead, he's coming in as Michael Barbaro. That's a much more natural form of conversation. That's sort of what the show is about, is boiling it down to, this is a very smart, curious person who on behalf of the listener, is going to ask all the questions that if I were in front of that reporter, I would really love to ask right now. I asked Lisa about the seeming hostility between Trump and the media. 
Is it really as vitriolic as it seems? Or is it manipulation of the voter base or show business? And does it even matter? Right after the election, when President Trump was elected, he came to the New York Times, the first news organization I believe that he came to speak to after his election, despite the fact that he had spent much of the election calling it the failing New York Times. He came by choice to speak to top editors and reporters here. Michael Barbaro approached him and shook his hand, and they had a very cordial interaction. I think it's been really interesting because I think the Times is a place where for years the brand, like the, the name the New York Times, has superseded individual reporters. So when people meet the journalists behind the journalism, I think that's good for everybody at a moment where there's a lot of mistrust in the media and there's a desire for transparency. The show is exposing you very directly to the journalists and giving you a level of access to the journalism. That is a form of transparency. And I think that's one of the things that people are responding so powerfully to right now. The show's genuinely at its core just trying to itself make sense of what's going on and help listeners make sense of it. You're listening to Rome Schooled, and we'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to Rome Schooled. We're taking a look at the press and the prez, looking ahead and looking back. Thomas Jefferson, he got rid of the sedition laws, but he also called newspapers the polluted vehicles of lies and inaccuracy. We talked about Carter and whistleblowers. We touched briefly on President Adams and President Trump, but we would be remiss if we didn't throw a nod to Dick Nixon into the mix here. Here are a couple of his greatest hits regarding the press, starting with a staff meeting in which he's pretending to write on the blackboard. And if that type of rote memorization doesn't really work for you or drive the point home, or if the sound quality is just too crappy, try this lecture in which President Nixon recorded himself on his own phone, scolding one of his staff members to drive the point home. First, as I told you, there would be no interviews with the New York Times under any circumstances for you in the Pentagon Papers. I want the goddamn staff to understand that the blackout on the Times is total under penalties of, uh, frankly, dismissal. We cannot have our people get soft because of their trying to suck up to some of these goddamn newspaper people. No man from the Times will ever be in my office as long as I am president. It isn't worth it. I put it on the basis of the Pentagon Papers. I think we just cut the son of a bitch out. They are not to talk to the New York Times. That order is on and it's final. The same is true of Time, the same is true of Newsweek. Is that clear? And finally, this one, it may be my favorite rhetorical moment of the presidency in which Richard Nixon addresses the press corps head on. I have never heard or seen such outrageous, vicious, distorted reporting. When people are pounded night after night uh, with that kind of frantic, hysterical reporting, it naturally shakes their confidence. And yet, don't get the impression that you arouse my anger. <laughs> you see, I have that impression. <laughs> you see, one can only be angry with those he respects. Mr. President, Mr. President. Oh. It's quite a, it's quite a diss. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Um, that's actually one of my favorite presidential moments. So you, so you guys have done a little research, and just to review, what happened to Dick Nixon? He he was a pretty good president, um, and he got things done, but he was kind of an he wasn't very nice to people. <laughs> he was kind of a what? What were you about to say? Asshole. <laughs> <laughs> he cheated in re-election. He hid microphones in the Democratic headquarters, and he made them look like chapsticks. I didn't know that until you guys did this research. The microphones were disguised yeah. as chapstick. So he didn't he didn't do it himself though. Yeah. Yeah, he hired two burglars and they put the, they hid the microphone chapstick in there <laughs> and they also broke into the filing cabinet and they, Which fi- which filing cabinet? The filing cabinet that held all the records of the Democrats the yeah. the party that he was going up against. These burglars they were not good. Yeah, why? Burglars. They left an address book and they did damage. What's that? Why does that make them bad burglars? When you're a burglar, you should kind of leave Cover no trace. Up. Like, leave no trace. <laughs> like good campers. Yeah. <laughs> so they decided to go back and re-burglar to repay all of the damage. That they had done the first yeah. time? How do we know about all of this? So oh, since yeah. they left behind an address book, they, they looked who was paying them, and all the evidence led straight into Nixon. But how do we know all this? So there are these two guys, Bob and Carl. They're Washington Post reporters. There are a bunch of ways that they got their information, oh, but yeah. one of the biggest places that they got their information from was this guy named nicknamed Deep Throat that worked at the FBI. So then what happened? Well, so Nixon had this weird habit of recording recording all his Every phone calls. And, and so... The Supreme Court ruled that he had to hand over his recordings from his phone, the recordings where he was mean to people. He also had the chapstick recordings. <laughs> so so he was like... So then what do you have to do? He resigned. Since he knew he was going to get busted, he resigned. Hello, hello. Hi. 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 I'm Floyd. Hi. How old are you, Damon? Uh, eight. So we've got an eight-year-old and an 80-year-old talking about First Amendment issues today. Is this the youngest person who's asked you questions about the First Amendment? No, because I had children of my own. Uh, and when they were Dana's age and younger, we used to talk a lot about First Amendment issues. Floyd Abrams is the legal authority on the press and freedom of speech. He's perhaps best known for representing the New York Times in their Supreme Court case in which the U.S. government ordered the Times to stop publication of the Pentagon Papers, the ones just referenced by Richard Nixon in the little snippet that I played. The day we met with Floyd just happened to be the anniversary of the judgment in that case. Wow, congratulations. So tell us about what your favorite memory is of the Pentagon Papers case. My favorite memory was being called in the middle of the night at being asked to work on it. Absolutely stunning call. It was the uh, second day of publication of the Pentagon Papers. Okay, not many people still are talking about the Pentagon Papers, but it still matters. They, They weren't officially declassified until 2011. The Pentagon Papers were a history of the United States in Vietnam, and not a very flattering one because they showed that Johnson and his administration had lied to the American people, to Congress and the world. People who were still in Vietnam when the Pentagon Papers came out in 1971 were none too happy. Daniel Ellsberg was charged with conspiracy, espionage, and theft 
of government property, but the charges didn't stick because of some of the shady things that the Nixon administration did to reel him in on these crimes. So instead, Ellsberg, with the help of the free press, became the first and biggest whistleblower of the modern era, and a big part of getting the truth out on Vietnam rested in the hands of Floyd Abrams, who has since become the expert in the free world of freedom of speech, the First Amendment, and the free press. That night, the New York Times got a telegram from Attorney General John Mitchell directing them to cease publication of the Pentagon Papers. Fifteen days after the case was brought by the government, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that the government did not have the power to bar the Times from quoting from or otherwise referring to the Pentagon Papers. And so the restraint on publication that the government sought was denied. It was a six to three vote by the court, and it remains one of the great landmark decisions in American history. This is no overstatement. This case gave new meaning to the First Amendment and the freedom of the press. Floyd doesn't overstate anything, really. His office reflects a humble, stoic way that he approaches this incredibly important issue. In fact, there isn't really any art on the walls. There are no plaques or trophies commemorating his contributions to democracy. There are just three things. One is a special piece of baseball history. Then there's a picture from his daughter's wedding. And the third thing is a certain French newspaper. I have an original French newspaper with the headline is J'accuse. Uh, in which protest was made by Emile Zola to the false conviction of Dreyfus in France. Who's Dreyfus? In 1894, a French officer, Dreyfus, the only Jewish French officer, was wrongly accused, sentenced, and jailed, part of a wave of xenophobia and paranoia about leaks of classified information. This was the work of the Vichy, the French government during World War II. The Vichy also extradited thousands of Jews, including Dreyfus's granddaughter, to Nazi Germany Jewish encampments. The newspaper headline on the wall in Floyd's office decried Dreyfus's conviction, front page. The journalist who wrote it, Emile Zola, was also sent to jail for a year for libeling the army. Sound familiar? He exiled himself to Britain, and the Dreyfus affair is one of the most notorious battles for the free press. And we look back today on it to see how rapidly a civilized society can descend into barbarism and chaos when it's being governed by fear and the suppression of the truth. I do think that these are dangerous times. Anytime you have a president who is so hostile to the press, so threatening in what he has said about the press on a literal level, Uh, We should change the libel law. Uh, Journalists shouldn't be allowed to use confidential sources. The constant reference to fake news. Failing. uh, Failing newspapers. uh, And the advocacy to the public to reject anything out of hand uh, because they're the ones saying it. Michael Barbaro called it a prophylactic approach to the press. I think that's a fair way to view it. Uh, uh, There's no, I think, avoiding the conclusion that his, his definition of fake news is news of which he disapproves, or which makes him look bad. Now that said, it's not legislation, and it's not going to court. So far, it's talk, but I, I don't minimize the impact of talk. The area in which I have most concern about 
on the legal side is more the Espionage Act being used. We live under an Espionage Act adopted literally a hundred years ago this year uh, during World War I, which is phrased very broadly and which one could read as uh, treating as espionage the revelation of information, quote, relating to the national defense, unquote, which the press wasn't supposed to have and didn't have the authority to have. Truth-tellers being criminalized, whether it's through the Espionage Act or through their freedom of speech being eroded, uh, through the libel laws being changed. When President Trump wants a libel law standard to be changed, lowering the bar of what it takes to be held slanderous or libelous, isn't it only the courts that can change these things? uh, First, there is no federal libel law. There's there's nothing to change. Uh, We have 50 state libel laws, and he has nothing to do with them. More important, the reason that those state libel laws don't give him the, the authority he would like to bring lawsuits is the First Amendment. That is New York Times against Sullivan, and in particular its conclusion that uh, you can't win a libel case against a public official or public figure unless uh, what was said was both untruthful and either known to be untruthful or suspected to be untruthful by the speaker. That's a pretty high bar of proving libel. Now, what about freedom of speech for everybody else? Whatever our intentions, can we say things that hurt other people? Conservatives and liberals alike tend to agree on the protection of even the most outrageous uh, and even sometimes dangerous speech. I mean, when the Westboro Baptist Church Mm -hmm. goes around protesting uh, outside churches in America, uh, slain American soldiers from Afghanistan and Iraq are being mourned when they go out with signs saying fags ought to die, they use the word fags all the time, that the Supreme Court would say, as it did, uh, with an eight-to-one vote, uh, that that's protected speech. And not just protected, but especially protected, Chief Justice Roberts said, Hmm. because it's about matters of public concern. In this respect, we are unique in Western democracies. Canada, that's a crime. It's a hate speech crime, Exactly. Right? Yeah. A hate speech crime affirmed by the Canadian Supreme Court there in a very serious, thoughtful opinion, but totally at odds with our law. Well, let me say that a few of the things that Trump said about Mexicans, Muslims, uh, would be criminal throughout Western Europe. There are cases with startlingly similar language to things he has said. Floyd what his favorite case was, and he told us about this time when he fought on behalf of a bunch of artists and a museum. Yeah, and it involved elephant poop. One of them uh, was a Nigerian-English artist, created a a portrait called Black Madonna, which uh, showed a black African woman, um, and which had on her body sparkling pieces of elephant dung, which is used in Nigeria as a way of celebratory, and also had some near-pornographic photos, parts of women's body, 
But also, the elephant dung was, was sealed in a, in a shellac-type substance. It was a large bead of elephant dung. Correct, correct. And the pornographic images were in a potpourri type of a collage around the right. base of the thing that you couldn't really see. It, that's true. Right? No, that's okay. true. I'm just adding facts. Cause no, I'm, 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 no, I'm very glad you are. Uh, Mayor Rudolph Giuliani uh, uh, announced that uh, it was sacrilegious, that uh, New York would no longer fund the museum, and I represented the Brooklyn Museum, challenging that and challenging the city's response to it, in which the city said uh, that the Brooklyn Museum had to leave its premises because in response to what Giuliani had said, the museum's response was to put a sign saying, no one allowed under the age of 17 without an adult, which the mayor's position was that was a denial of access which the Brooklyn Museum had in its original charter from 1890-something, agreed always to be open to the public. Uh, so with no notion of how ironic it was for him to be saying <laughs> keeping children out was a bad thing. Right. So we went to court, and it was just one of these cases where everything went right. Uh, we had a judge who was persuaded by our arguments, and I think it's fair to say sympathetic to our arguments. I remember showing her an enormous picture of a statue of David uh, and from the street in Florence because... The statue of David, Dana, his uh, private parts are very beautifully and prominently displayed. I held it up, and here Dana might find it, it interesting. We had asked a representative of New York City what do you think the rules ought to be? What sort of art ought to be allowed in a museum? And he said, I'm not making this up, Dana, something that I would let my eight-year-old daughter see. That was not exactly the most First Amendment-friendly uh, regulation. I laugh because it is so far from a standard which any civilized society would establish for its museums that one is to judge it by uh, uh, what one would want a child to see or not see. But if we're not careful, those sound bites sound good to some who might be influenced Maybe. by puritanical... Uh, that's right. No, that, that's true. Certainly, given the description of Black Madonna that you and I have, have exchanged views about, I, mean, I can understand how religious people would be deeply offended. Well, maybe not by the way we've described it, but by the way it was described at the time as if elephant dung had been flung at it. Oh, that's true. No, that, that's as true. excretorial. Right, right. But in any event, it, it was sort of a favorite case because it was good to get up in the morning and go to court because we, we did so well, and he was the perfect defendant. Giuliani. Giuliani. And, and a lot of people don't understand when when you say perfect defendant, it means horrible defendant yeah. for the defense. Yeah. Great yeah. defendant for you. Yes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> As someone who had no appreciation of, let alone understanding of the need to protect the works of art. So how did we get from the prez versus the press to elephant dung and the virgin mother? Let's bring it back for a second. These are really, really dishonest people and they're bad people and I really think they don't like our country I really believe that these are sick people I think the media is among the most dishonest groups of people I've ever met
One of the things we talked about with Michael Barbaro was President Trump's strongly worded urging for uh, Barbaro to resign. When a president goes after a, a certain member of the press like that, what effect does that have on, on society writ large? Uh, first, it has the obvious potential to uh, chill uh, any journalist who uh, would rather not be held up to ridicule, criticism, and in this day and age, threats. And not just by crazy people lurking in the shadows, but by Montana congressmen yes, exactly. body slamming them. Or... Yes, yes. Beyond that, uh, I think it threatens our society as a whole because it makes controversial truth-telling. It puts at issue the value of revealing facts, and it begins to align a significant percentage of the country on the side of rejecting criticism of those in power, analysis of those in power, because those members of the public are persuaded that any such efforts are out to harm the people they voted for and support and the values that they hold. So it's, 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 to me, it's very dangerous stuff. Whether you feel that these are dangerous times or whether you feel that the current administration is getting an unfair deal from the press, there's something of a battlefield between the press and the prez that we can't ignore. We wanted to know from somebody who's there on the front lines what it's like on a nuts and bolts level. My name is Natalie Sept, and last year I left everything behind to work on the Hillary for America campaign as a press lead for the advanced team. The advanced people are the intermediary between the press and their experience of an event. You are working on behalf of the campaign, so obviously you want to do everything you can to show the candidate or what's called the principal. I was kind of like a roadie for Hillary. <laughs> Uh, I, I was more obsessed with gaff tape and cable lines than I've ever been in my entire life. And we're living out of our suitcases. But the, the interesting thing is, as weathered and badgered as we were, going from state to state every three days, setting up these events, the press were in the same position. More often than not, the press pool, who was following Secretary Clinton around as she was campaigning, they were always, we were always in close quarters, cramped, they were shoved into corners. They lived like animals. I mean, they were packed into these vans. <laughs> and like, yeah. And, and you then, guys live like this as well. We did. Anytime we're stressed, we often don't really show off the best parts of ourselves. I remember one time in Detroit, we were doing a labor march um, on Labor Day. President Clinton, Bill Clinton, was walking down the main street in Detroit with all these UAW workers. It was something like 40,000 of them. We had this idea, we put them on the back of a truck bed. There's no risers that we could put out in the middle of the street. So we were like, we'll put them on the middle of a truck bed and then do our best to say, hey, you know, you really shouldn't be too close to the candidate. We really would love it if you stay up here. And of course, as he's walking by, he has a scrum of like 70 people that are surrounding him to protect him and provide a security. A scrum? Yeah, you know, like in rugby. <laughs> <laughs> like It sounds dirty. It I mean, I don't mean dirty, uh, x-rated dirty. It sounds like an un unlikable lot of people. No, like in, rug like, like in rugby, like a crew, like a crowd of people that's surrounding you. And, and that's it, a scrum. It's a scrum. You don't know rugby terms? Come on, Jim. I thought you were Oregonian, not <laughs> Irish. <laughs> I went to hippie school. We played rugby. <laughs> hippie school. Okay. So you separated the scrum from the candidate. The press wanted to get as close to the candidate as possible to get the most authentic, unadulterated, raw commentary about anything, like, you know, any reaction to Trump, which is their, you know, moneymaker, essentially, because he's such a great media person. 
This is this kind of work has happened for decades. There have been advanced people doing this for a very long time. When Robert Kennedy ran for office, his advanced people would go ahead of him maybe a couple weeks, get on a payphone and call him and say, hey, we're going to go to this place. I think it looks okay. And then they would just go there. Right. Whereas now there's detailed maps. You have to plan them out with research. Excel and like all this. Research. Yeah, exactly. You're there ahead of time. A week ahead of time, you meet with all the people. You draw out these maps. You do walkthroughs with Secret Service. I mean, it's extremely... A huge team of people is out there for every campaign, making sure the messaging doesn't get mangled. And every campaign, I imagine, feels this way, but I got the sense that they felt like a herd of animals being surrounded by wolves. Because the press were seen as such a volatile, combative, and hostile force, the press team had to be especially careful and cautious about how we interacted with them. I was instructed again and again not to talk to the press. Like, do not talk to the press, don't chit-chat with them, pretend that you don't know, feign ignorance all the time. The press poll specifically was always trying to get something out of me. Certain individuals from outlets like Fox News would be hoping for some sort of gotcha moment. How do I put this? They're constantly looking for weak points. You know, like a tiger in a cage, where it's constantly looking to learn areas of weakness so it can break through? Yeah. That's kind of how I started to view the press. One of the reporters that was in the press pool would always ask questions in different ways to get me to respond. And the year prior, I'd lived with an attorney, and so I got really good at being able to divert the question. Um, so, do you, so do you get to how this works? No. I don't understand. What does Natalie do and how does it work? I, when I was starting, it's very hierarchical there within the advanced system. And when I was starting, I was just a, what's called a P1 or a press one, which is the lowest level of press person on the advanced team. And there isn't a lot of power that you have in advance. You're just in close proximity to power. So people would wield this small amount of power and have these fiefdoms and... Brings and, out the best in people. I know. I can't. Yeah, exactly. It was probably the most unhealthy I've ever been in my life. I should have brought you... I'll bring you a, a soft pin. A what? A soft pin. Soft pin? So the way that you delineate authority is by pins. So if you're a hard pin, it means that you are a full-time staffer and you're close to the principal. So you have this thing, it's like an enamel pin. But for us, advanced team, those that were not full-time and on the main part of her staff, or campaign staff, we had what's called soft pins. And those were given out by... Are they made service. of jelly or plastic? Or? <laughs> it's, a jello <laughs> yeah. it's a jello shot. It's a jello shot. No, it's, it's a... Uh, it's an aluminum pin, kind of like when you go to museums and you clip it onto your lapel and it ah, bends with your okay. fingers. Yeah. But these were like gold. If you had a certain soft pin with an S or an R or something else, it would delineate your rank. So certain soft pins would allow you to get really close to the principal and backstage, whereas others, you couldn't even get past the main barricade. So you can hear from all the background noise, maybe, that we're out for a walk and we're in the park. The girls run off and they're taking a break. And just at this moment, the wind comes up and starts sounding like running water in the trees. And suddenly it's feeling like fall again, as Natalie tells us a story about being with Team Hillary and the press corps on election night. One of my favorite um, memories, sort of, favorite and worst memories from the campaign was election night. There were thousands of press people and around 50,000 people that attended that event on, on election night at the Javits Center. 
So I was just watching the main press riser, and one of the most vivid memories I have is sitting on these cannons that looked kind of like fish tanks with big funnels coming off of them. They were supposed to be the cannons for the confetti, and the confetti was supposed to look like shattered glass. So we, myself, and the Swedish press were sitting there. I'd done three events in the last four days in three different states, and so I was completely fried. I'd been drinking coffee to try to stay awake, and returns are just about to come in. So we lose Florida, and it's over, and my friend Tien pulls me um, with another friend who has a hard pin, who's major campaign staff, who has all this access, and they're like, we're going up to the VIP lounge so we can start drinking for free. Nothing matters anymore, you know? It's like it's all going down. So I, I get pulled off, and all of a sudden, as I'm following them, and they're my access to get up there, and I'm delirious at this point, this man who was probably in his late 40s, early 50s, who had a camera around his neck, and I recognize him as one of the cameras that was on what's called the champagne flute. It's just a podium in the middle of the crowd so they can get a good picture. And he grabs my arms and starts shaking me, and all of a sudden, he starts to cry. And I, I've not been in many rooms with men in their late 40s and 50s who are Crying. coming to tears. Yeah. He collapsed and fell right into me. And I was, I was holding him up with all of my strength, and he's sobbing. He goes, I can't have a Trump presidency. I can't follow this man around. I can't live my life in watching him and reporting on him. And I can't, I can't do this. Eventually, Natalie makes her way upstairs to the VIP bar. And I get this pint glass from a woman, and she just takes this bottle of scotch and just tumps it, tips it right upside down. So I have this pint of scotch. <laughs> and I go, and I, I kind of excuse myself. The table next to the couch has all this sheet cake, and so I sit there, I just grab it with my bare hands, this huge piece of sheet cake. This is where the sheet cake thing comes from? <laughs> no, seriously, all of the advanced people that snuck up there, we all were just eating it with our bare hands. The first sheet cake moment happened, <laughs> and you were there. Oh, my God. When we talked to Natalie for this episode, she had not yet seen the Tina Fey sketch from SNL that has given new meaning to sheet cakes. Sheet caking is a grassroots movement, Colin. <laughs> Most of the women I know have been doing it once a week since the election. Give me some of that damn cake, man. I'm in this crusty, old, ripped, ripped inside Banana Republic suit with like a scarf that I thought would be festive. Like I have no, I look deranged. I'm just not in a good way. And we go back down into what essentially is a bunker and John Podesta gets up on a flimsy folding chair and says, hey, it's not over. We're going to count every vote. It's going to be a long fight. Go home, get some sleep. We're going to get ready in the morning. And we're all crying. And we get an, I get in an Uber or something, and I, we go to the bar that's supposed to be the after party. And I walk in, and I look up at the TV, and it says Hillary is conceded. And then, I'm sorry to make you relive this. I, it's like everyone asks me this story, and I'm like, it's cool, I'm numb now, I can't feel anything. <clears throat> no, you're not. And then I go home. Home. My home is the hotel room. <laughs> I'm sharing a room like you do with two other people, and I crawl into bed with them. It's not in any way romantic, it's just like, oh, bed, here, here you go. And I, we wake up at 9 a.m., and we see the middle of the concession speech. And the, oh. the really sad thing about advance is that it distorts, it completely distorts your reality. 
I mean, I got in to see the first woman elected president, and by the end, I just wanted to be the person that was called to do the coolest event. It became so much of a popularity contest, and the kind of people, and the, when I watched the concession speech, I was devastated, but I, I'm embarrassed to admit that this little part of me was like, how come I didn't get invited to do that? And maybe that's the core of it. Maybe the press and the power of so many eyes and such intense immediate attention on anything that you do warps the way one sees things. Natalie is a great organizer and does amazing community work, raising money for good causes and campaigning hard with all of her heart for change that she believes in. And the press will always have a role. What we've learned in this episode is that it's something that we need to watch and protect and be wary of to the best of our abilities. Frank Snepp left us with this optimistic idea. What we've got as a result of uh, the Trump phenomena is a, a newly enlivened press. None too soon, by the way. So that's it. Another inconclusive conclusion of Rome Schooled. We hope you've enjoyed coming along with us. We want to thank Natalie Sept, again, Frank Snap, Michael Barbaro, and Lisa Tobin, and all the folks at the New York Times, Floyd Abrams, and Governor Kate Brown for offering their ideas about the press and the prez. Thanks for listening to Rome Schooled. Go to our website and sign up to be an adult junior park ranger and receive your adult junior park ranger badge. I welcome your input. I want to hear what you guys have to say, ideas for new shows, thoughts on old ones, or just drop us a line. The show wouldn't be possible without Lydia Ritchie, our producer out of Philadelphia, who contributes immeasurable ideas and guidance for the show. The music in the show is made by me and Ben Landsverk under the name of Wanderley. We hope you join us again soon for another Rome. <laughs>